morning. If you are a guest and you are a visitor, my name is Pastor Jonathan, and I want you to know that you are welcome here. Now, as we begin this morning, I want to tell you, I love sports. I love watching sports. When I was in high school, I loved playing sports and competing in them, and now I love watching them. And I've passed this on to my kids. I'm pretty sure that each one of my kids, and Natalie can testify to this, learned to throw a ball before they learned to walk. And now Timothy's not even two years old, and I'm a proud dad because he can hit a ball in the air, like coach pitch style, and he's not even two years old, and I'm just waiting for the recruiters to call. And so I'm posting on Instagram, praying for them to call. Uh, In high school, I played varsity football and varsity tennis, and I wasn't the best athlete. Uh, I don't have the build to be the most amazing athlete, but I loved competing, and I loved sports. I graduated high school in Monroe, Louisiana, and it has one thing in excess that West Texas does not have, and that's humidity. And in the late summer, when we were prepping for football season, and we spent the two weeks before football season having two-a-days, getting ready for the season, those were some sweaty days. And some of your favorite people on those days were the water boys and the water girls. And our water boys and our water girls didn't just prepare us water, but they also prepared us Gatorade. And we thought that we, thought that we were blessed and highly favored because we had Gatorade as well as an option. And that was always our first choice at the beginning of practice. However, at the end of the day, at the end of Friday, when you had sweat more than you possibly thought that you could sweat, and when you were at the end of that second practice on Friday, at the end of two days, you had no interest in the Gatorade. You know what I'm talking about. You only desired the water. You were desperate for it. Why? Because however satisfying and pleasurable Gatorade can be, when you are really thirsty, when you are really depleted, only the real thing will do. No substitutes will satisfy. That's a lot like the Christian walk, isn't it? We know that only God will satisfy. Only the real thing will do. However, the problem is many of us allow substitutes in our lives today instead of the real thing. Instead of rejecting the false, we embrace embrace what is fake and wonder why it is that we're left unsatisfied. Today in our text, we'll discover what it looks like to reject the false and to embrace the real. Now, today is our last Sunday in the book of 1 John. Uh, For some of you, ever since you've been coming here, we've been in the book of 1 John. Uh, We've been in the book of 1 John since the beginning of uh, May, and uh, today we'll mark our 21st and final sermon in the book of John. And we're done with it. And I saved the best for last, the very last verse. So our text today is only one verse. Last week, we looked at chapter 5 of 1 John, verses 13 through 20, and we saw that we can have a confidence, assurance in Christ for eternal life. And our big idea was this, because Jesus is the Son of God, we can have confidence in Him for eternal life. Today, we will finish the book of 1 John, and we'll be in chapter 5, verse 21, discovering what it looks like to reject the false and to embrace the real So if you have your Bibles or a version of the Bible on your phone, take it out and turn to 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, and follow along as I read our short passage today. And it simply says this, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now throughout this letter, we have seen John use this language of little children, referring to his reader as little children seven times. 
And we've talked about this phrase and how this phrase, little children, was not with the intent of being something that looked down upon or an insult, but practically, because John at this point in his life was practically older than most everybody that he was writing and talking to. But I wonder what else we can understand through this language of little children. What else it might paint a picture of? What do we know about little children? And how might it help us understand how we are to keep ourselves from idols in the second half of this passage? Well, we can first recognize that this title, little children, is a title of deep affection. In the family of God, we have one thing in common, and that is that we share a common father, And Galatians 6.10 even refers to this family as the household of faith. God himself is the father and our Lord Jesus Christ is the older brother. And all of the members, our brothers and sisters are all equal in one in Jesus Christ and and we're sisters in Christ in love. Naturally, when John, a child himself, however, maybe a little bit of one of the older younger children at this point, uh, looks around at the younger men, members of the family of God and calls them little children. He means this as a title of deep affection from John towards the church that he is writing to. But this title also indicates something else. It indicates the humility of those who are called by that name. Think about that for a moment. To be called little child and to accept that title is to admit that you are a little child. And this requires humility on the one who is receiving this title. We are admitting that we don't have it all figured out. That there is a God who is our father. That we are not even the older child, but we are at the bottom of the ranks. And this requires quite a bit of humility of us who are called by this name. That's also a title of teachableness, right? When someone comes to this point of humility, it shows that they are able to be taught. Little children do what? They go to school to learn. They go to school to learn their letters and to learn their basic math. And to accept the title of little children is to show that as a Christian, as a little Christ, as a Christ follower, that we are looking to learn because we admit that we don't know everything. And when I did play tennis in uh, high school, uh, my coach would always remind me, she would say, Jonathan... For me to help you get better, you need to be teachable. She was gently letting me know that I didn't have it all figured out. Even though as a 16-year-old boy, I thought I knew everything, she was reminding me that I needed to be humble, and I needed to have a teachable spirit to be able to learn, and I needed to have faith in her to be able to teach me. See, to be teachable requires us to have faith. Jesus had a lot to say about childlike faith, didn't he? In Matthew 18, verses 3 through 4, he said this, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. See, children have a beautiful faith. And as believers with childlike faith, we admit that there are things that we cannot grasp with our minds. But we have faith that God is in control and that God is working all things out for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purposes. Think about a child for a moment. Uh, They don't understand how the brakes on a car work, Uh, but they have faith that every time when they get in a car, that they'll work. Uh, They don't have control over the driving of the car, but when they get in a car, they trust that their parents are going to drive them there safely. Uh, They don't understand where they are going or when they need to be there when they get in a car, but they understand and they have faith that their parents know the way 
and have calculated when they need to arrive at appropriate time. See, little children have faith. And as they grow, their faith leads them to be teachable. So the title little children is a title which indicates teachableness and faith like a child. Little children is also a title of weakness, right? To admit that we are little children, to accept that title is to admit that we are weak, that we can easily be led astray and that we need a father to lead us, to protect us, to guard us. And if you've ever spent much time around little children, especially really small children, you know that they have a one-track mind. When they are focused on that one thing, there is no detouring them from that thought. They are thinking about and focused upon that one thing that they are focused about and nothing else. When I was growing up, there was a theme park in Nashville, Tennessee that's no longer there, but it was called Opryland. And my dad was a minister who was leading our youth group at that time, and he had taken a group for a trip. And everyone went their separate ways during the day, and we were supposed to meet up that night uh, to watch the fireworks display. And I was probably four or five at the time, and my brother was probably seven or eight. And my, bro- my dad was much braver than I am uh, today because he took a group of youth and his entire family and dismissed them and trusted everybody to gather back in a day with no cell phones. But at the end of the day, my brother and I and my mom were trying to make it quickly back to where we were meeting everyone in the center of the park. And my mom was focused on the task of arriving at our destination quickly. I was focused on following my mother, but my brother, he was focused on a ride that he didn't get to ride during the day. He had asked my mom, uh, can I ride that ride? And she said, no, we don't have time. But that was the object of his affection. That is where his focus was. Uh, She had told him no, and he had heard her clearly, but yet his focus was on that ride. So when he was supposed to be following my mom to the place we were gathering, guess where he ended up when we all ended up at the center of the park? He was not gathered with the group. We got there, my brother was missing as a four-year-old boy. This was the largest place that I had ever been in my entire life, and I thought I would never see my brother again. And so I spent the entire time of the fireworks display crying out to God in prayer for my brother who was lost. My parents missed the entire fireworks display because they were searching frantically for their son who was lost. You see, little children have a one-track mind. They're focused on what they're focused on and nothing else. And my brother not being focused on his parents, his father, caused him to be lost. It caused his brother to cry out for him, and it caused his parents to seek him. As Christians, as little children of God, we also have a one-tracked mind with one focus. We're either focused on God, our Father who is leading us, or we are distracted, misled, and lost by other things that grab our focus. This is John's point in the second half of this verse as we go to the next passage where it says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, when we read most of the books of the Bible, most letters written end with what we would consider with a proper conclusion, an amen, or this is how it's said, but not the letter of 1 John. No, John ends this letter with an imperative command, something that we must do as a believer in Jesus Christ to keep yourselves from idols. 
This can seem weird to us in our 21st century American West, West Texas uh, eyes, right? Like, surely no one in this country would worship an idol made of stone or wood or metal or something that we picture as a physical idol. Surely this is only for primitive people groups, maybe in the backwoods of some long-lost village, would need this warning, right? But before we talk about what idols might look like in our lives, in our current context, let's review for a moment on what idolatry looked like throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see over and over in the Old Testament, God's people falling into the trap of idolatry. Think about Exodus Remember back in Exodus 20, uh, when Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, the first, two com- cam- the first two commandments literally say, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall have no idols. Remember what the people talked Aaron into doing while Moses is gone, into making a golden calf, into making an idol. These are the same people who just five or six chapters earlier saw God deliver them from the slavery of the Egyptians by parting the Red Sea and then having the Red Sea close on Pharaoh and his army. And then they got to the other side of the river. And what did they do? They sang and they said, God, we will never forget. We will always remember this moment. And then just five or six chapters later, they've decided a shiny yellow cow is their object of worship. How foolish can humanity be? In the book of Judges, we see God's people turning to idols. Even amidst stories like Gideon, who burned down the altar of Baal, attempting to point them to the Lord, but then he himself points them back to idol worship. Through the story of Gideon, we can understand that even if we defeat the idols in our lives, if we don't fight to focus our worship on God, another idol will quickly take its place. To quote one of my favorite books on worship, Unceasing Worship by Harold Best, he says this, Nobody does not worship. You see, we all worship something. Either we worship God or we worship a cheap imitation of Him. Psalm 115, 4 through 8, quotes Deuteronomy, and it says this, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak, eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. And listen to this, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. This psalm reminds us quite literally that we always conform to what we worship. In Isaiah, Isaiah 57, 1 through 13, we see Isaiah speak against idol worship by God's people very strongly, saying that idol worship mocks God, it disobeys God's word, and it sells out worship that is what is meant for God for what is less. Isaiah likens it to a married man instead of receiving intimacy from his wife, finding cheap thrills in another's bed. See, just like intimacy is reserved for marriage, idolatry occurs when we take something that is meant for the glory of God, worship of Him, and we make it about ourselves. Idolatry is spoken very strongly against in the Old Testament. But not only is it spoken strongly against, even the Hebrew words used to describe it are vivid in opposition to it. The language used in Hebrew for idolatry can also be understood to meant as pellets of dung. It's a detestable thing in the sight of the Lord. It's a thing of horror to take what is meant for God 
and to give it to another and ultimately to ourselves. But that was the Old Testament. Surely things changed after God came in flesh as Messiah, right? Let's look and see in the New Testament. In Acts, Stephen addresses the issue of idol worship. Continuing, and then the Jerusalem Council addresses the issue of idol worship. So we know that idol worship was an issue because this was addressed. We see it in other forms through the book of Acts as well. 1 Corinthians and Romans, we see Paul addressing the topic of idolatry. And in Romans chapter 1, where he talks about God giving them up to the lust of their hearts, and they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So we see a shift here from worshiping idols of metal and wood and of stone and worshiping the God of ourself. See, even in the book of Romans, humans are taking what is meant for the glory of God and making it about ourselves and our own self-satisfaction. And then John is writing this book to the city of Ephesus. We can understand Ephesus uh, to be an epicenter for idolatry in the Roman world. There were actual idols worshipped like the goddess Diana who was thought to reside in the temple in Ephesus. But also, remember why John wrote this letter. He wrote this letter because of who? The religious elite. And they were telling the church what? That it must be Jesus plus tradition or Jesus plus works, that Jesus alone was not enough to save. And there was plenty of self-worshipping going on, worshipping themselves in some form or fashion as being their own saviors. Not to mention that John saw it fit to end this letter, that it was important enough to end this letter stating that this was something that we must do, an imperative that believers of Jesus Christ must do, that we must keep ourselves from idols. See, to John, Jesus is the real thing. And anything and everything else, if substituted for Jesus, is an idol. Look back at verse 20 in 1 John chapter 5, just for a moment. It says this, The Son of God has come. For what purpose? He has given us understanding. Understanding of what? So that we may know Him who is true, and that we are in him who is true, Jesus Christ. See, John sees this as a black and white issue. There is no gray area. Jesus is the real thing. He is what is true, and anything else is a cheap imitation. So idol worship, we can understand it, is when we take something meant for the glory of God alone, and we make it about something else, and ultimately about ourselves. Well, that was almost 2,000 years ago when they worshipped idols in the New Testament. Surely we are far more superior than they were in our intellectual age, right? We would not fall to the practice of worshipping idols made of stone, wood, and metal, would we? John Wesley, the great English evangelist and unintentional founder of the Methodist denomination, put it this way, Whatever takes our heart from him or shares it with him is an idol. Well, what are the things of our culture that takes our heart from God, that shares it with him or replaces him? The possibilities are endless. But just for a moment, 
let's think historically of idols that are made of stone, wood, or metal. And let's ask the question, what might some modern day idols look like in our culture that are made of stone, wood, and metal? Well, today, what is made of stone that we might worship? Maybe in our day, we call it brick instead of stone. Most of us in this room own homes made of brick. And whether you're a homeowner or not, we can all fall guilty to idolizing our possessions. What do I mean by that? Well, when our possessions turn from possessions to passions, or when we have to choose to work over worshiping God because of the things that we have bought, that we desire to buy, or that we fantasize buying, when we imagine that this certain possession will bring us joy, satisfaction, and completion, we can know that we have turned our possessions into idols. Now, I want you to hear me clearly when I say this. It is not wrong to work hard. And it is absolutely not wrong to work hard to provide nice things for your family. We should work hard and provide a home and for the needs of our family. However, it's when the desire and motivation changes from provision to satisfaction that we have an issue. When our mindset goes from this is what my family needs to this is what will bring us joy. This is what will bring us completion or satisfaction. It's when the motivation for purchasing an item goes from this is what my family needs to this is how this will elevate how people view us, how people think about us, and ultimately how they want to be like us. Listen, in our culture, we are all wealthy. Uh, We live in one of the wealthiest societies in all of human history. I mean, we are sitting on padded chairs in an air-conditioned room with TVs on the wall. We are a wealthy country. Uh, What we consider basic needs now were luxuries just 80 years ago in our country. And the reality of our culture and society is that we all need to be on constant guard that we don't idolize our possessions because it can happen in a moment. And the moment that we take anything that is meant for the glory of God alone and make it about ourselves is the moment that we have turned to idolizing that very thing in our heart. Christian, stand on guard to not fall into the trap of idolizing your possessions. What about the idol of wood? How would we idolize wood in our country? Now, I can think of one item made of wood that my kids are obsessed with, a baseball bat. But it's not just a baseball bat that we can turn into an idol, is it? It's entertainment as a whole. Our culture has turned the entertainment industry of athletes, actors, and social media influences into people which we can turn into idols. And this has changed rapidly over the past decade. Where we used to be a culture that read about the rich and famous once a month in magazines, now with social media, we're constantly and instantly flooded with whatever the latest trends are and trying to keep up with what is fleeting. Christian, hear me clearly. If you follow the lifestyle of the rich and the famous more than you follow the lifestyle of Jesus Christ, or if you're trying to influence and, and if you're trying to emulate an influencer more than you're trying to emulate our Savior, then you are idolizing entertainment. What about the God of metal? How would one idolize metal in our country? Well, most of our money at least used to be made with metal, and we can fall into the trap of wealth idolizing wealth, can't we? Where possessions are things that we own, wealth is a number in a bank account that brings us fake security. And our country is really good at teaching us that our hope and our security falls into how much money we have tied into the investments in our bank accounts. 
Now again, it's not bad to be wealthy. The church needs those of you who are wealthy to give sacrificially to the church so we can continue to do ministry. But the problem falls where our hope lies, where our joy comes from, where our satisfaction and security comes from. If the number in your bank account brings you more joy and satisfaction and hope and security than the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross for your forgiveness and eternal life, then there's a problem. See, the death rate in the United States is still at 100% these days. And the percentage of those who died and took their money and their wealth with them still lies at 0%. But the eternal destination for all of those who died is 100% dependent upon their hope and their security placed in Jesus' blood as their Savior and Lord. Place your hope and security in the metal of the nails on the cross and not in the metal of the money in your bank account. But it's not just society that can create idols in our hearts, is it? It's also within the walls of the church. Idolatry can be when we take anything that is meant for the glory of God and make it about ourselves. And boy, can we do that within the walls of the church, can't we? What are some of the idols that we face in our churches today? Well, before COVID ever hit, Southern Baptist churches have been in decline for nearly 20 years. Baptisms are at their lowest rate since the 1900s, even though the early 1900s, even though the population has radically increased since then. And some of us in this room remember back when churches were busting at the seams in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, and maybe even before. And we remember the numbers that used to be present in our church. And if we're not careful, we can turn the numbers of the past into an idol instead of focusing on our obedience in the present. I hear that churches used to be able to have a come and see mentality. Now we have to be a go and tell congregation. Let's not fall into the trap of idolizing the numbers of the past, but let's focus on the obedience, our obedience of the present and the souls that God has for us to reach in the future. The American church also faces a unique challenge that has arisen in the past 70 years, doesn't it? The idol of experience. Now, at Mission Dorado, I will promise you this. As long as I am here, nothing we will ever do on a Sunday morning is for your entertainment, for your pleasure, or for your satisfaction. It is all to the glory of Jesus Christ alone. However, in church life in general today, we can quickly fall into the trap of, well, I like this band at this church better than this band and this music at this church. Or we can fall into the trap of, I like this preacher's jokes better than this preacher's tone. And as ironic as it can be, what is intended to be God's people gathered to make much about him can quickly become about us, our experiences, and what brings us satisfaction if we're not careful. We can quickly create idols in our hearts about our experience at church, as ironic as it may be. Closely following on those same lines, we can also fall into the trap of idolizing nostalgia within the church, can't we? This is somewhat ironic because this morning I was transported back into my junior high days. I began leading worship uh, when I was in junior high, and one of the first songs I learned to play was Give Us Clean Hands, and we sang that this morning. But if we've been in church life long enough, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Things don't look, sound, or feel like they did in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, or even the 2000s. 
I have a lot of friends who are pastors across the United States. And with COVID and everybody beginning to live stream, I've been able to pop into a lot of church services and watch their church services. And I can tell you this, particularly in the Southeast, if you're looking for a church that cosmetically looks like any decade, I bet you can find it if that's what you're looking for. See, we all have a certain remembrance and nostalgia of the church in whatever era it may be that we first met the Lord. And we remember that. And it's good to remember that first meeting with the Lord. But we must also look forward to our future meetings with the Lord. And now instead of being that young junior high kid who learned to play give us clean hands, we might be that balding, nearly 40-year-old person or older. And we're proclaiming the same message to a generation below us who looks differently, speaks differently, and functions differently, but still needs to hear the same message and truth that we heard when we were young, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we can be so quick to fall into the trap of nostalgia, can't we? You can just ask the worship team, if I pick up a guitar, I'm going to start playing a worship song from the late 90s or early 2000s, and I fall into a moment of nostalgia. It can be so easy to fall into, but we must guard ourselves from making idols of nostalgia or preferences and elevating the principles and the message of Jesus Christ. Those are a lot of ways that we can fall into idolatry, either through the church or or in the culture. But what do we do with this passage that John left us with today? Well, the imperative command, the thing that we must do in this passage is presented in the word keep. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. How do we do that as 21st century American Christians? How do we keep ourselves from idols? Well, today I want to share with you three ways that we can keep ourselves from the idols in our hearts. First is spending time with God. This comes as no surprise, but one of the best ways to keep our hearts and minds focused on our creator and redeemer is to simply spend time with him. We must in our hearts and minds declare often and continuously that Jesus is better than anything else that this world offers. We spend time in God's word each and every day, learning more about who he is, his character, and how he has revealed himself to us through his word. We spend time in prayer to God, praying that he would hold us fast, that our hearts would long for him over idols of our own brains or imaginations, and that he would keep us from allowing anything else to rule us. To keep yourselves from idols, spend time with the one who is worthy of your worship, God. Second, we share about God. When something is important to us, we desire to do what? To share it with others. If we're scrolling through social media and we come across a silly video, what do we do to the person in the room? Hey, look at this. Or if we're scrolling through social media and we see something that's funny, we may share it with one of our friends or share it on our Facebook feed. See, we desire to share something because we see it as worthy of our attention and we think it's worthy of others' attention. We're going to share what is important to us with those who are close to us. Whatever is your passion usually is on the forefront of your lips and your fingertips. And if God is worthy of our attention, we see him as worthy of others' attention. To keep ourselves from idols, we share God with others. One, because it declares what is value, what is of value in our lives. And two, because through our sharing, it reminds our minds of the gospel and the goodness of the good news in our hearts as opposed to other fading and fleeting things. And last, 
to keep our hearts from idols. We prioritize God. Is God a priority in your life? Listen, church, what is your little G God will take priority in your life. So where is God on your priority list? Does he come last after you've secured your possessions and have been entertained? Or is he at the forefront of your mind and his glory always your priority? Listen, church, Sunday morning is when we gather as a body of believers to declare in unity together that Jesus Christ is Lord. Attending on Sunday morning to worship God should be your priority. I understand sometimes you're sick, sometimes you're out of town, and I understand sometimes work demands that you be there, but it should pain you. It should hurt your heart to miss church, to miss gathering with the body here at Mission Dorado, to declare together that Jesus Christ is Lord. The same way that it should pain you when you have to go out of town and leave your family or when your children are out of town and you miss them. Tony Evans, the pastor at Oak Cliff Bible Church in Dallas, Texas, said this recently. He said, I hear people say, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And they're absolutely right. Salvation is through faith alone in Christ alone. But you also don't have to go home to be married. But stay away long enough and your relationship will be affected. Believer, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian but you have to go to church to thrive as a Christian. And not only should church attendance be a priority for us, but listen to me, parents and grandparents and anyone else who doesn't live alone. It should be a priority for your entire household. For us of those who are leaders in our home, we need to lead those in our homes to prioritize God over everything else, particularly on Sunday morning. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm going to be blunt here. If they live under your roof, if you pay their bills, if you put food on the table that they consume, then you determine their priorities. And on Sunday morning, the priority is, is that they are in church, that they are in a Bible study, and you are listening to God's word sung, read, and preached. Parents, I'm going to be real honest right now. If you tell your child right now that sports are more important than God, if you tell your child right now that anything else is more important to God, if you prioritize something over God right now, then later they will prioritize everything over God. How do we keep ourselves from idols? How do we keep our children from idols? How do we keep our households from idols? We prioritize God in our lives and we prioritize God in our homes. We don't model idolatry for our families. We model holiness, being set apart from the world. And we prioritize God above everything else. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, Coca-Cola 
is about as American as it gets. It began in the late 1800s as a drink to be consumed during the Prohibition period. So instead of a hard drink with alcohol, people were able to consume a soft drink as an alternative to alcohol. It was first sold in drug stores and pharmacies where, at the time, carbonated water was considered good for health. And it was sold as a patent medicine claimed as a cure for many diseases. And while we now know that none of that was true, what did occur is that through this unique combination of coca leaves and cola nuts, an American icon was born, Coca-Cola. However, nearly 100 years later, in 1985, Coca-Cola decided that it was time for a change. They attempted to change the formula of the drink and called it the New Coke. And what Coca-Cola thought was the beginning of a new era turned out to be a disaster. People revolted, people protested, and they refused to buy this New Coke. So the company quickly had to change course and return to the old formula under the name Coca-Cola Classic. You see, people simply desired the real thing. And New Coke was not the real thing. You know what I'm talking about. If you've gone to the store and you buy an off-brand soda or you buy an off-brand ingredient, it's just never as good as the real thing. See, as people, we desire the real thing and reject all imposters. Today, we know what is true. We know that Jesus Christ is the true God who gives eternal life. And every idol in our lives, everything that we look to for joy, satisfaction, fulfillment, and security is just a cheap imitation of the real thing, which is only found in Christ alone. We must today always determine that Jesus is better, that he's better than anything else that is competing for our attention, offering us fake joy, fake satisfaction, or fake security. So listen to me today. Don't fall for the fake. Reject what is false and embrace the real. Our big idea for today is this. Jesus Christ is really the son of God. So we should reject all imitations and worship him alone. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Believer in the room. Idolatry can be when we take anything meant for the glory of God and make it about ourselves. Today, what do you need to repent of? What do you need to turn from and point your focus back to the glory of God? I can't answer that for you, but ask that of yourselves. What's receiving your attention? What's receiving your time and your talent and your treasure today? If any of it is outweighing the attention of God, then you need to adjust your priorities. I want to implore you today, believer, fall in love with Jesus. When we are madly in love with something or somebody, nothing else has to compete with it. It is the source of our attention, affection, and obsession. Let Jesus be that for you today. He is better. Accept no substitutes family leaders. How are you doing in leading your homes to prioritize God over everything else? If they live under your roof, if you pay their bills, if you provide them food, then you determine their priorities. How are you leading them? Point them to Jesus. 
He is the most loving thing that you can point them to. Maybe you're here today and God is not your priority. He's never been your priority. And you don't know why he should be your priority. Today, I want you to know that God loves you more than you could ever imagine. He loved you before you even knew that you could love him. What do I mean by this? I want to share this with you. God is holy. He's never done anything wrong, nor can he do anything wrong. He created you and me and everything that we can see and touch and feel. And he is holy and cannot be associated with sin. But yet each one of us, every human that has ever lived is a sinner. We've all done something against God's law, lied and just lied and stolen and cheated and lusted. We've done something against God's law and that creates a problem because God is holy and he can't be associated with sin. Therefore, as sinful humans, we are separated for eternity from God. But I have some good news today. God loves you and he loves you so much that he made a way that you can be forgiven of your sins and be in heaven with him for all of eternity. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to earth as a baby, being fully God and fully man. He lived a perfect sinless life here on earth, but yet went to a cross and he died for your sins. And three days later, he defeated sin and death when he rose from the grave. Today, you can be forgiven and saved from your eternal separation from God in a real place called hell. If you repent of your sins, believe in Jesus Christ and follow him the rest of your days. Have you done this? If not, Today is the day of salvation. In a moment, I'll pray and we'll sing. And that's the moment that you can come down and you can receive Christ as your Savior. Believer, I want you to know that the altar is open. I want you to come and confess before the Lord today. Let's do business with God. Maybe you've been visiting with us for uh, some time and you're interested in joining and being a member of Mission Dorado Baptist Church. I would love to visit with you during this prayer time or at the end of the service. If you want to catch me, uh, you can email me. You can call the office. I'd love to talk to you about membership. What is it that you need to do today? Let's pray. I'll pray, and then you all come.